Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of the teaching team. And if you're new with us and you're like, holy cow, there's just no room here. They should do something about that. Uh, we are. We're building a building next door. We'll have about twice as much room. And this time next year, we'll be in there. And so, uh, yeah, man, there's a lot of you today. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, I want to begin today by telling you about the time when I thought I maybe was going to get arrested for a felony. Um, it was in college, and I, my freshman year of college, I um, had a roommate who had never had a computer. And I know some of you are like, what? That's, that was Yeah, back when the Earth's crust was still hardening, uh, and I was in college. I, I brought a computer to college. My roommate had never had one, and he never had internet. And so he fell in love, as people are prone to do, with technology. And so he spent a lot of time on there, and at one point... Uh, he, he figured out that you could start scanning stuff. And scanners are these old things. They're kind of like when you take a picture with your phone and email it to yourself. But they would actually scan in and, and go into the computer. And so he figured out, or I think it started with curiosity. He's like, I wonder what would happen if I scanned a $20 bill. And so he scanned a $20 bill in, and then he scanned the other side. And he started printing them out double-sided and cutting them out and making $20 bills. And um, he, he did this originally just kind of as a, like, a, hey, I wonder what will happen. And so he'd print a few of these out, and he would go sit somewhere like where people walked by, and he'd crumple them up and make them dirty and like leave them on the sidewalk and just watch and see if people would come and would take the, the money. And enough people did that he's like, well, gosh, maybe this, maybe I should go to the next level. Now, granted, this is printer paper. This was not like money paper, but it was printer paper. And so he ended up printing off a bunch more of these, and he went down to, he would go down to the local bars where people would hang out. And when it would get really busy, he would order a drink, and he, which you're like, freshman in college, yeah, he shouldn't have been there, but he was there. And he, he, when it was really busy, he'd order a drink, and he'd hand him one of these 20s, and they'd give him the drink and the change. And so over the next few months... Maybe it was a month or weeks. I don't know what it was. But he, he made like $300 in change that people were, were giving. And at one point, I'm like, it's occurring to me, this is all happening on my computer. And this is not a good idea. And I'm telling him, like, dude, this is a felony. Like, you're, you're counterfeiting money. You really shouldn't do this. And it's on my computer. You should please stop doing this. And then he almost got caught. And uh, that kind of spooked him, and, and he didn't get back into it. But, I, but I've thought about that as it relates to just counterfeiting. And, you know, he was just counterfeiting a little bit of money. I heard this story about this Canadian guy who counterfeited $250 million, and he actually was able to get some of the paper that they print money on, and so his was much more effective. But, but the counterfeits there, it, it hurt people. Right, it hurt the people that had the businesses. Ultimately, it hurt him because it kind of taught him, yeah, you can just kind of get what you want without having to actually work for it. And, and so that, that counterfeit experience was really not good for him. And the reason I tell you that whole story is because Satan, the devil, is the master counterfeiter. The, the devil has no creative ability. All he can do is distort what God makes. So God's the creator, God's the designer, God's the one with the intellect and the ability to just make it happen, and Satan counterfeits it, right? So God creates love, and God creates intimacy, and God creates sex, and God creates marriage, and what the devil does is he creates a counterfeit. He says, no, 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 well, we're going to split all those things up, and we're going to give you the same kind of fulfillment as what the devil promises without all of that other stuff. 
And in this passage today, where we're specifically looking at the way that the enemy has counterfeited sex, this good gift of God, created by God for incredible enjoyment within the context of marriage, Satan distorts it. And here's the thing. It's hurt every person in this room. Every person. I, like I know somebody's like, oh, we all, we all have been negatively impacted by sexual sin. Maybe our sin that we've committed, sexual sin that's been committed against us. Maybe just the sexual sin of people in our lives. And maybe we knew about it and we knew how their sin was impacting us. Maybe we didn't even know. Like some of you have probably had some disconnects with people. You're like, why is it so hard to connect with them? And if you knew, you might actually find out that it's because they're so enslaved to sexual sin, this false intimacy, this counterfeit approach to relationship. And it's damaging so much of the rest of their lives. This has impacted all of us. And so it makes sense that the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to a group of people and saying, hey, here's what it looks like to live as a follower of Christ, it makes sense that he would address this issue. It makes sense because this is such a key thing that impacted so many people we will see in Ephesus, but also impacts so many people today that he's going to say, if you want to experience the life, if you want to experience the joy, if you want to experience the freedom of really walking with Christ, you've got to set aside your sexual sin and walk in purity and thankfulness. So that's what we're talking about today. Each week over these last six weeks, if you haven't been with us, we're just doing a verse or a little section at a time. And it began actually back in chapter 4, uh, verses 22 and 24. In chapter 4, verse 22, the Apostle Paul here writes, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. You see, he had spent the first three chapters talking about this new life that you have in Christ, that if you trust in Christ, you can be saved by grace through faith, experience adoption into his family, experience him pouring out his spirit on you, all of these rich blessings. He now says, okay, in light of that new identity you have, you gotta live differently. Put off the things that go with your old way of living and put on some new things. 424 says, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is actually clothing language. Take off those clothes, put on these clothes. Right? Any of you ever had the time where you're like going to an event or to a party or to something and you're like, what do I wear? Because you know that depending on where you're going, there's certain clothing that fits the occasion and there's other clothing that's like, that would be wildly inappropriate. Right, like when I first moved out to Arizona and I would go to a wedding and people would have like cargo shorts and a t-shirt on, I'd be like, this doesn't fit. Well, no, it actually does fit Arizona, but everywhere else it doesn't, like if you ever move to the Midwest, buy a suit, you're going to have to wear it to a wedding. But, but what fits, and, and here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, listen, you've, you've moved into a new realm. You've moved into a new relationship with God. Put on a life that fits that. So each week we've been saying, put something off that's part of your old life, put something on that's part of your new identity in Christ, because here's the reason. That's what we're going to look at here today as well. Let's pray. Father, we invite you now to speak to us by your spirit. 
God, I pray that you would bring conviction where needed and hope where needed. Point us to Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. So put off, put on, because. What do we put off? Well, today, I'm summarizing verses 3 and 4 as put off sexual greed and filth. Put off sexual greed and filth. Look at verse 3 if you have your Bible, chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. This doesn't mean you can't talk about it. He's saying this shouldn't be named among you. This shouldn't be like part of your identity. Let there be, verse 4, no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. I've summarized this as this sexual greed and filth, but the specific words, verse 3, sexual immorality, that refers to any kind of sexual activity that is outside the boundaries of what God has defined, which is one man and one woman in a covenant marriage. Anything outside of that, any kind of sexual activity outside of that, sexual morality. Now, you could also say the kind of desires that go into that are in the next two words. Impurity, that just means dirtiness. And then covetousness. No, impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Covetous is, is greedy. That's how it's translated most of the time in other places in the New Testament. It's greed. And Paul doesn't, I, I think you could make a case that Paul wants us to put off material greed, <laughs> that we shouldn't be greedy. But I think in this context, what Paul's talking specifically about is this kind of greedy covetousness, I want what you have, I want what I want, I'm out to accomplish and to get more that will satisfy me. That's why I'm calling it sexual greed. But then it's also just the filth associated with sex that's used the wrong way. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. We're not even going to talk about this, Paul says. Why? Why is this such a big deal? Well, God created love and intimacy and sex. These are good gifts of God, meant to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage, and meant to embody self-giving delight. You're meant to enjoy sexual intimacy as you give of yourself. But sin says, no, 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 don't make it about what you give, make it about what you get. Satan counterfeits sexual intimacy in marriage and says, you know what, you can have the sexual pleasure outside of marriage and in all kinds of ways you want, and it's not about you giving, it's about you getting. That's sexual greed, that's sexual counterfeit. Sex is a beautiful thing. It's, it's like fire. Fire is, it provides heat. It provides warmth. It allows you to work. It allows you to accomplish things. Out of control, it destroys everything in its path. Same thing with sexual sin. Now, this Christian sex ethic is revolutionary today, but it's always been that way. In fact, when Paul wrote this, uh, look at what one scholar says about the condition of Ephesus, how they thought about sex in those days. He says this, illicit sexual activity was an enormous problem for new Gentile Christians to overcome in the early church. Adulterous relationships, men sleeping with their slave girls, incest, prostitution, sacred sexual encounters in the local temples, and homosexuality were all part of everyday life. They even in Ephesus had a temple to Artemis, who was a fertility goddess. So just use your imagination how you would go and worship Artemis. It involves sexual sin. 
He says there was also, this is fascinating, there was also not an accepted social standard with regard to sexual relations. So in our world, right, there's this sexual revolution going on, which is a rebellion against the established standards. But at least there have been, in Western culture, some established standards. He's saying in Ephesus, there wasn't even that. It was just anything goes. Therefore, this is a revolutionary idea. And so it's not surprising that Paul addresses this over and over and over because everywhere he goes, people are confused about it, even to this day. So in his letter to the Thessalonians, here's what he writes there. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Some of you have wondered, what's God's will for my life? What, is, what does God want me to do? Here's this decision. What do I, what, what's God's will? And usually we're trying to make a decision about it. This is pretty clear. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That's a word that means your holiness, your obedience, your becoming more like Jesus. What's God's will for your life? It's that you would become more like Jesus. You go, oh, well, what, what decision should I make? Should I take this job? Should I move this? Should I go there? I don't know, but you might want to think, what will help me be more like Jesus? Specifically, then, he says, the way this looks is abstaining from sexual immorality, and this part at the end is fascinating, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, there's a way that's totally normal for people that don't know God, but you know God. You're children of God. That's what he said actually in chapter 5, verse 1. Look at there, back in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You're children of God, so imitate him. This is so big, as I said in verse 4, he says, don't even joke around about this. Don't talk about this. Don't find a great deal of pleasure in, in joking around about stuff that is against God's will, against God's heart that makes the counterfeit seem more appealing than God's original design. Don't joke about that. And we might ask, like, well, gosh, what's the big deal with this? Like, what? I mean, why is this such a... I mean, he, he talks about it in verse 3, sexual morality, impurity, covetousness. Verse 5, sexual, moral, impure, covetous. What's, what's the big deal? Well, there's two reasons this is a big deal to Paul. The first is it's selfish. Sexual sin is selfish. It's selfish. It's, it's in that word covetousness or greedy. As I said, God created sex to be used as a gift to bring delight, self-giving love. Covetousness, greed, turns it into what can I get? Can I get some? How, how far did you get? How much did you get? That's the way you talk. What are we saying? We're saying it's, it's greedy. It's selfish. Sexual sin is selfish. Sex without commitment is selfish. If you're having sex with somebody that you're not committed to in marriage, that's selfish. If you're living with somebody who is not your spouse and you're participating in sex and sexual activity with them without the commitment. It, it's selfish. You might go, well, but, but I have good reasons and we're trying to save money and, and I just want to make sure we're compatible. And I'm sure that your reasons are sincere. 
God's word is telling you it's selfish. Because what you're saying is, I want all the benefits, I want all the delights, but I don't want the cost. That's selfish. Sexual fantasy, selfish. Using pornography is selfish. Right? Think about this. What are, what are you doing when you're fantasizing sexually, when you're using pornography? You're saying, I want to kind of imagine the scenario that would just be exactly what I'd want. In fact, with pornography, you can go, well, what, what's my perfect type? Or even what's the thing I want to see now? And I just kind of, I want to customize my experience to be able to see and fantasize and please myself on exactly what I like. It's selfish. Sexual abuse is clearly selfish. Where you're taking advantage of your power or your age or your influence to hurt other people for your own pleasure. That's selfish. But sexual abuse, it doesn't just happen with kind of age differences and power dynamics, it also happens in marriage. See, what, what some of you are doing is you're fantasizing in this world of pornography, and so you're watching all these very selfish things and going, I want to try that now in my marriage, and I'm going to force that issue. And if my spouse won't go along with it, I'm going to actually make them feel like they're selfish. When really, you've just filled your head with filth. And things that are detestable to God, you now are going to try to force on the person that you're called to give yourself to rather than use. It's selfish. Sexual sin is selfish. It's not just selfish, though. It's also arrogant. Because what sexual sin does is it says, you know what? I get to call the shots. I, 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 you know, who's to say what's right and wrong? You know, as long as it feels good, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, who's to say, you know, that whole biblical thing, that just sounds so old-fashioned and it sounds so narrow and it sounds so judgmental. Who's to say? You know what? God's to say. And for you to, to question that is arrogant. For you to say, no, I want to be able to decide. This passage actually tells us there is, there is right and there's wrong as it relates to this. Look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That word proper means fitting. So if you're a follower of Christ, not only are you a child of God, verse 1, but here in verse 3, you are a saint. That means you're a holy one. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been set apart for God's purposes. You're a saint. Therefore, there are things that don't fit saints. It's not proper. It's not right. It doesn't fit a saint. Similarly, verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Do you see that? Which are out of place. There's things that are out of place. And the nature of sin is an arrogance that says, I get to say what's right and wrong, and I get to greedily, selfishly have what I want. The very first temptation 
Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. They have everything they could ever want. There is trees. There is food. There is abundance. They are enjoying God's presence. Everything they could want, but there's one tree they're not supposed to eat. And when the devil, the master counterfeiter, comes to them and he tempts them, how does he begin his temptation? Did God really say you shouldn't have that? And that's what the rest of us want to do. Well, did did God really say that living with somebody before you're married is wrong? I mean, there's not a verse exactly that says that. Did God really say it? I mean, did God really say that, that, that sex should only be in a heterosexual marriage? Did God really say that? There's an arrogance to saying, I know what's best for me. Who cares about God? Who cares about what he created? Who cares that he made me? I'll call the shots. That's arrogant. And think about the rest of that temptation. What was it that finally got Eve to give into it? It says there that she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise. So she took of it and she ate. What is she doing? Here's what she's doing. She's saying, ooh, that looks good. I'm not satisfied with the rest of the garden here. I want the one thing I can't have because it looks like it'll be good to me. It's greedy. It's arrogant. The garden wasn't enough. You know what she's saying? She at that point would stand up and say, small is thy faithfulness. The one thing I needed, you didn't provide. Small is your faithfulness, Lord, unto me. That's what sin says. But we just sang it a moment ago. Great is your faithfulness. All I've needed, you've provided. God, you're with me. God, you're for me. But sin says, no, 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 no. God doesn't like you. God's holding out on you. And if you just do what you want, that'll make you happy. And we're all reaping the horrible consequences for it. I'll I'll just tell you personally, my biggest regrets in life all have to do with sexual sin. This is not a hypothetical thing for me. This is not a, well, you people. We are living with the disastrous impact of sexual sin, all of us. A woman came up to me who's part of our counseling team after the first service and said, 98% of the conversations I have relate to this. So there's just something out there. This is something right in here, and it's destroying us. And so Paul says, put it off. Get rid of it don't have anything to do with it. Instead, there's something we should put in its place. And this is surprising, because what you'd expect would be to say, hey, put off all this sexual greed. Instead, put on holiness, put on righteousness, put on faith. But what does he say? He says in verse 4, put on thanksgiving. Huh? Put on thanksgiving. Do you see that, verse 4? Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. What was Eve lacking in the garden? Gratitude. Thanksgiving. It didn't occur to her, wow, God's given me everything. There's no way he's holding out on me. You know what? 
why is a serpent talking anyway? This is insane. Like, I'm not listening to you, right? Like, that's what happens if she is filled with gratitude for God. But when, when that gratitude goes away and you start to feel entitled and I deserve better and, you know, I, then it's just a vacuum that's perfect for sin to come in. So Paul says, no, fill yourself up with thanksgiving. Don't joke about all these sexual things that would be so clever or so funny or so witty. Rather, have your, the quickness of your wit be directed toward thanking God. The antidote to selfish taking is grateful thanking. The antidote to selfish thanking is great, selfish taking is grateful thanking. Are you thanking God for the good gifts in your life? Are you thanking God for how he's provided? Are you able to say to him, Lord, all I've needed you've provided? Have you spent as much time dwelling on the people in your life and the spouse God has put in your life or the situation God has allowed in your life and thanking him in all circumstances or are you only dwelling on what you don't have? You're setting yourself up to be Eve. So put on thanksgiving. Don't dwell on what you're entitled to. Dwell on what you're grateful for. Why? Why do we put off sexual greed and filth? Why do we put on thanksgiving? Well, Paul gives us the answer. Number three, because you belong to Christ's kingdom. Listen, there's things you can be sure of. You can be sure that Arizonans are thankful for air conditioning. You can be sure that moms are tired. You can be sure that young men are full of themselves. You can be sure that ASU fans hate U of A fans. I mean, there's just things you can be sure of. Paul says there's something you can be sure of. Look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or is covetousness, that's that's the same three words, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Remember before verse 1 he said, You're beloved children of God. You have an inheritance in God. And if you have an inheritance in God, live like it. But if you are habitually engaging in sexual immorality and impurity and in greed, here's what you need to know. That's idolatry. You see that in verse 5? In other words, you may say Jesus is Lord, but your Lord is your lust. You may say, oh, Jesus is my king, but actually it's your gut, it's your desires, it's your pleasure. You're on the throne of your life. You're an idolater. And so he says, listen, if you're part of Christ's kingdom, walk in light. That's where we're going next week. This is no joke. You go, gosh, that, that sounds extreme. So, so people are going to experience God's wrath just because they had They lived out different sexual desires? Yes. Yes. Let's make no mistake about that. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 6. Look at what he says. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Oh, how much empty words there are today. There's so many empty words. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, God will, you know, God, God would never, you know, send someone. No, God will. Look at what he says. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't be deceived. Everyone who is marked by 
sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. They're all, and and that's, that's an important thing to see. Look at verse 5. He says, everyone who is sexually immoral. In other words, this is the thing you're known for. This is your life-defining sin. Maybe you've chosen it as a, hey, this is just my identity, but maybe more often it's something that you just are so enslaved to, you've never broken free. The hole is just dug deeper and deeper and deeper. You may think, oh, I've fought it, but in reality you've kind of made a home for it and you've made peace with it. It's like the hornet's nest up in your porch that you know is there, but you, yeah, I just haven't knocked it down yet. You've allowed this to just kind of make a home in your life. And what Paul's saying here, get this, this is as serious as can be. Paul is saying, if you have made a home with sin, you are living like a son of disobedience, not a child of God. Are you a child of God? Well, if you're a child of God, you, as he's going to say, you walk in love, you walk in light, you walk in wisdom. Rather than thinking about what does this mean for how I can make myself happy with these things, you think, how can I obey the Lord? How can I honor the Lord? How can I find actual life and freedom giving of myself to other people? This sons of disobedience term, do you see that in verse 6? Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That was used back in chapter 2, verse 2. You don't need to turn there, but I will. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what Paul's saying. If you indulge continually in sexual immorality, impurity, sexual greed, and filth, you are being a son of disobedience. And you have every reason to question whether you actually know God. Get this. It's not like you're a child of God and then you commit these sins and so you are rejected and kicked out of God's kingdom. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if your life never changes and you continue to be marked by these things, it proves you never changed. You don't have the new life of Christ living in you. You don't have the spirit of God dwelling in you. If you're not seeing at least some incremental growth and fruit and improvement here. If you're made peace with this, watch out. That's what he's saying. You know, what's interesting is I think about the inheritance language that Paul uses in verse 5. Do you see that? Everyone who's sexually immoral or impure, who's covetousness, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Here's, here's the good news. If you're a follower of Christ and you're walking in the light, you are actually experiencing the inheritance now, because what is the inheritance of the kingdom of God? It's you get more of God. 
And so as you walk in holiness and you find, oh, God is my treasure, God's who satisfies me, God's who I lean on, you actually are experiencing the kingdom of God. You're getting a taste of it now. It's not just like off someday in the future and you're going to get it in the future. You're actually getting the kingdom now. Here's the bad news. If you're making a home with sexual sin, you are reaping hell now. It's not just like, oh, well, hell's out in the future and God's going to send you there. No, you're already saying, I'm going to live in the inheritance of hell now. And you'll just stay there forever. There's so much at stake in this. Whose family are you part of? Are you a child of God or are you a son of disobedience? Whose story are you living in? Are you living in the story where God has created these things to give you life and blessing and joy? And no matter how much junk you've had to deal with related to it, you're repenting of those things and you're seeking help and counseling and you're seeking to work toward following and obeying God in this area of life because you know his story is true. Or have you bought into a counterfeit story? says, well, as long as it makes me happy, as long as it feels good, I just can't help it. See, some of you, you think the problem is you don't have enough willpower. And I'm going to tell you today, the problem is you're still a slave. So turn to Christ. Trust in him actually own. Quit kind of explaining away and justifying and minimizing this area of sin. Own it. Go to the Lord. Say, Lord, look at how filthy I've been. Look at how lost I've been. Look at how much I've bought into a counterfeit story. God, forgive me. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That's the path to grace. That's the path to freedom. That's the path to wholeness. If you keep pretending you're fine, you're lying. It's darkness. It's deceit, it's counterfeit, and it's ruining your life now, and it will ruin your life forever. We're children of God, invited to walk in a new life of Christ, a new life of freedom, a new life of giving ourselves away, a new life of grateful, thankful praise to God. Whose child are you? Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Oh, God, forgive us. Forgive us for how we have hurt one another, how we have used one another, how we have treated your image bearers as objects for our own lust and pleasure. God, forgive us. Cleanse us. Allow us to move toward Christ and find wholeness and healing and freedom. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.